Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. Today, I'm joined by Cade. Hello. And David. hey First, we're going to jump into the community news. Hey, so there's a new book out in the Elixir community. Uh, it's in beta, just entered beta. The title of the book is called Testing Elixir, which I think is a really interesting um Really interesting t- topic because testing with a functional language uh, like Elixir does uh, does have its own its own complexity. Sometimes, you know, if you're uh, used to a object oriented programming language, um, topics like mocking is uh, is a little bit different. So it, it'll be good to have a good book together that organizes all of these kinds of testing topics uh, and guides you through how to do that really well. And this is a book by uh, Andrea Leopardi and Jeffrey Mathias. Uh, it, the title is called Testing Elixir and it's effective and robust testing for the Elixir, for Elixir and its ecosystem. And it's published by, uh, Prague Prague. Another item is the Elixir Ecosystem Survey 2020. You can find a link to that in the show notes. It will be online and available until August 11th. The results will be shared at the Elixir Conf 2020 along with the raw data. And that is a really cool benefit. So don't feel like, you know, I'm just new to the community. I'm just exploring Elixir. If you're listening to this, you are part of the community and we would love to know about you. The survey is anonymous. And whether you're a new or seasoned member of the community, we want to hear about your experiences. And because the raw data is shared, everyone can benefit from it. And we can figure out how we can better serve the Elixir community and help people get through the hurdles and, and become productive quickly. During the survey, you are asked about uh, a podcast that you listen to. And the Thinking Elixir podcast is too new to show up in the list. So feel free to write us in. That'd be nice. Another item is the Elixir Forum announced a new discussion platform for the Elixir and Erlang communities. Find a link for that in the show notes. It is called devtalk.com and there are different channels. One for Elixir, Erlang, Phoenix, and Gleam. Uh, also in the news uh, is at the Apple Worldwide Developer Conference uh, is happening this week. And unless um, you've been living under a rock, maybe you've heard that uh, Apple is coming out with a new line of Macintosh. Uh, and the big piece of news there that'll be interesting to Elixir developers and, and Erlang developers is that they have uh, new processors coming. They're moving to their own silicon. Uh, the big deal here is that it's going to be ARM-based. So it's going to be interesting how how we handle that. <laughs> How do we install Elixir? How is ASDF going to um, cope with this? And what's the developer experience going to be like if we're, you know, working on these Macintosh um, ARM computers and deploying to servers that are not ARM? <laughs> so that'll be interesting. So, uh, yeah, we'll see how that develops. That is an interesting topic just because, you know, the Beam runs just fine on ARM. We're protected in that way, but then you do have things like where uh, hex packages might have a native compilation that's included, and so that might yeah. be affected. And yes, that will be definitely something to watch for. And that's the end of the news. We are pleased today to be joined by Ben Wilson. He is the CTO at CargoSense and the co-author of the Absinthe Library and the book. Uh, when he's not answering questions on Slack or the forums, you can usually find him on his bike or at a choral rehearsal. COVID uh, accepted. And we're glad that he's able to join us today. The topic we really wanted to address uh, is kind of talking about REST versus GraphQL, where the strengths are, when to think about using one over the other. And Ben is an awesome resource, and he agreed to come on and help us kind of think about this. So Ben, uh, welcome. And uh, maybe you can fill in anything else that I, I didn't mention there about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, we've been using... We've been using GraphQL at CargoSense for a really, really long time. Um, we were talking earlier about sort of conference talks and conferences, and it was my very first Elixir Conf, which was the, the second Elixir Conf down in Dallas. Um, Chris McCord was talking about Phoenix and kind of talking about other technologies he thought were, were interesting, and he mentioned offhand GraphQL. And uh, Bruce, our, our CTO at the time, and I had had already been looking into GraphQL and when Chris mentioned it, we were like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna look into this more. And then, you know, a few months later we had, you know, Absence 0.1 or whatever that first version was. So we've been and we've been using it in production basically basically ever since. Um, it's been a really great boon to us um, and a tool that I've been very pleased to see has has found a widespread 
use and support um, within the broader Elixir community. So one of the things I, I want to kind of cover and make sure we talk about is I know a number of developers who have perhaps heard of GraphQL, but they have not worked on a project with it, and they don't necessarily understand the benefits of why should I choose to do a GraphQL library? Because, uh, you know, frankly, it's like REST has been working fine for me. I might have uh, customers who are using, um, who are connecting to my API and making API requests, and they understand JSON and REST. You know, it's like, just kind of help us get a, an idea of what problem is GraphQL solving? Why I might even want to use it? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I could talk and I will talk about like the the sort of easy documentability, the easy way to sort of figure out what's available, the, the bit where you can customize what you want. But I want to first kind of remark on on how the web has really changed over the last 10 years. And especially if you're writing Elixir code. Uh, the way that you think about getting data between systems has really changed because it, you know, REST was built um, really around like this paradigm of we're going to use the HTTP verbs and, and sort of HTTP conventions as a, a core uh, organizing thought around how we're like asking for data or pushing updates about data and so on. But then when, and so like REST is tied very deeply to that model but as we start um, writing code in Elixir that's using channels, or maybe we're writing live view and we're trying to like keep up to date about things, um, or we're trying to have systems use a message bus and talk between them because we're you know writing more distributed architectures. REST is just not a tool that's fit for that. And that doesn't mean that REST is like therefore a bad tool, but it does mean that um, as those become more common, the toolkit that we need really needs to expand beyond that. And one of the things that's been very interesting about GraphQL is that because it's not tied to any particular transport, it, we found that it can you can use it in one scenario and then use it very easily in another scenario. So, for example, um, we had our, our very first GraphQL API was built in a, for a very traditional web situation. We had a sort of JavaScript-heavy web front-end framework and we wanted to query query data from our API. But then we had sort of um, a project we wanted to try at CargoSense. So uh, I will get into more of what CargoSense does later, but we had this sort of experiment we wanted to try. And it was going to leverage a lot of the capabilities of the core platform we built, but include some domain modeling around this specific area. And so we wanted to be able to communicate back to that server, but we wanted it there not to be a hard like uptime requirement that could be up or down on their own. And so we had um, some real-time communications over, you know, uh, WebSockets or TCP streams between those systems. And we also had some sort of asynchronous message bus work we've done over SQS. We just used the same GraphQL API. It worked fine. We'd like send queries and we'd get responses. And we know the transport wasn't really a factor there. And that's like a system-to-system -system example, but we've seen the same thing happen with channels. You know, when people, when people want to leverage Phoenix's awesome support for channels, uh, they're kind of on their own to invent their own patterns for like, how do I query information? How do I ask to be updated about information? REST doesn't even think in those terms. And so not only does uh, GraphQL as a strategy let you work in those different contexts, it, there's a deep synergy between effort you put into the API and the benefits you get in those scenarios. So work that a developer puts in to expand uh access to users or shipments or something that, that was initially done to support your HTTP-based React for it front end or whatever, that's immediately accessible to your mobile developer. That's immediately accessible to uh, the part, the guy who's writing the, the channel part of your JavaScript. It works there, and so you get a lot of um, really important benefits as, as your way of accessing systems changes. So that's, that's I think, the thing that's often missed um, because when people are introducing GraphQL, uh, there are there are like a lot of really it's an easy to use query interface. It documents itself. Graphical Playground or or equivalent GraphIQL is like the killer app. It's the best documentation tool you'll ever get for an API. All true, um, but in terms of like, I think it goes. I think it's bigger than that, and and that's that's I think the thing I'd say to really kick it off. Nice. One benefit I've seen from GraphQL was when I replaced multiple REST requests in our front-end JavaScript 
to make a single GraphQL call uh, that fetched all the data needed for the UI, but only the data that was needed for that UI. Previously, the REST version made multiple requests and cached all the data in the front end. And after moving it to GraphQL and getting those optimizations, it was literally 10 times faster. It only made the one request and the payload that it fetched was much smaller. The more the backend knows about what you want, like the better it had, the bigger picture, the more it can hold on to the big picture of what it is that you want. It can do sort of optimizations across all of that. And at a minimum, you're cutting out transport costs, right? About having to reinitialize the, the connection, or even if you've kept the connection alive, you still have that back and forth. So we've seen similar performance improvements. Um, and, you know, I, I think that the, I think that the, the other aspect of it is there's when you're asking for just the data you want, of course, your payload size is smaller. But on the other end of the spectrum, from like a backend developer, you can use um, that uh, the queries you're getting to track what of your API people are actually using. So, for example, in a in a REST API, if you're loading, if you're doing some expensive work, you're having to join these tables in and you're putting them in your your result and no one's using them. That's effort that your system's doing. That's effort that you're having to, that's code you're having to maintain that no one's getting any benefit from. And so when your GraphQL clients are asking for what they're actually using, you can use, you know, Beam Telemetry or pick, pick your favorite sort of track what people are doing over time technology and say like, oh, hey, there's this whole chunk of the graph no one's using anymore. Like, boom, deprecate it. Like, let's move on. <laughs> um, so there's, there's really quite a host of benefits. So I've been I've been writing in a an API a pretty traditional CRUD like architecture and uh, with Phoenix Live View uh, what I've been doing has has been like in my context functions when I create an event for example I'll also uh, publish um, that uh, in a in a pub sub manner right so it, it does the actual repo insert and then it notifies any subscribers for that uh, the Live View. Uh, is a subscriber, so it sees that event come in, and then I make the adjustments on the on the front ends. How how does GraphQL, you know, uh, adjust that story? What is what does that look like if if I'm using GraphQL instead? Um, does does it? I mean, that's that's an internal you know thing. That's not like client facing necessarily, but and I realize that GraphQL probably does have some client facing like subscription models there too. So yeah, how how does that plug in? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So. And there's really two sides of it. As you were pointing out, uh, the way that most people are doing Live View today is that, um, especially if you're starting a new Live View project, your Live View code and processes has sort of direct access. It's all one Elixir application with your Active Store and so on and so forth. Um, what we are doing, because we've, you know, CargoSense has been around for um, a little while. And I'll I'll do uh, I'll talk more about what we've been up to here uh, in a bit. But basically, we've got this platform with a bunch of information and uh, about shipments of stuff. And um, that platform is used in uh, we have mobile APIs and we've got uh, it's used you know API integrations with customers and so on. When LiveView came out, we knew we wanted to build a, a sort of rapidly prototype a bunch of new user interfaces around some new customer use cases that they'd come up with. And so we built a new Elixir app using LiveView, but then using like making GraphQL queries to our platform because it already had all the all the data that we wanted. It was sort of very different than what I think a lot of people are doing. And two things really um, stood out to us. One. Uh, subscriptions are awesome. So you can have uh, in your little pub sub scenario, right? Uh, if you end up deeply coupling the expectations and needs of um, your live views to the data that you publish, because either you like the data that you publish happens to be everything it needs, or if it's not, you either need to like change your publishing or it's going to have to do a bunch of like extra querying at that point in time. And you're going to have to like write code that supports the need to do what it's doing. So in GraphQL, um, there are really three entry points into a GraphQL API. There's uh, the query entry point, which is a very traditional, like I would like to start at one of these sort of specified entry points in the graph and then maybe pro provide some inputs uh, to filter things and then sort of work my way down and get associated data. Uh, the other side of that is that I want to make a change in the graph. 
uh, I'm going to create a user. I'm going to start a shipment. Uh, and that will return a shipment. And so that, that then sort of plops you in the graph at that point, and you can query on from there. Subscriptions are the PubSub model in GraphQL, where you're going to say, uh, I would like to subscribe to shipment update events, perhaps. And when they happen, I'm going to get a shipment and I can query. Now, the key thing to grasp here is that if I'm going to say um, that I have a query and I'm going to query a shipment by ID, that's going to return a sort of shipment uh, GraphQL object. And I'm, I can query whatever I want on there. Those, those subfields, the things that are available on a shipment, like its origin and, and destination, all that stuff. The code that I write to support getting the origin and destination on a shipment when I query it by ID is exactly the same code that will run when I create a shipment and then want to get its origin and destination. And it's exactly the same code that will run when I subscribe to a shipment and want to get its origin and destination. So I write code to get the origin and destination for shipment once. And it's, of course, only if the user asks. We don't, we don't overfetch, all that good stuff. And then whether I'm in a you know request response model, whether I'm making a change and want to get the outcome of that change, or whether I'm subscribing to changes and I want to get the outcome of other people's changes, it's exactly the same code. It just works. And we were able to we you know we, we version you know zero dot zero one of the app we like had a, a list and, and a show page and they're like huh we should make this like live update and so we just queried the same stuff and pushed it into our view and it was done. Like it was, it was so easy. It was stupid. <laughs> so the, the thing here is that that's of course, most people aren't writing uh, using absent or GraphQL sort of internal to their applications. And I think that's fine. I think that's that we're actually kind of hoping to change that to some extent. So we're working on an absent uh, client, a sort of Elixir GraphQL client that will let you write, um, uh, I, I, it'll, you'll still you'll write a GraphQL query, but you'll get compile time checking of that query. It'll be tell you if it's valid or invalid, and it will it will instead of returning sort of string keyed JSON style data, it'll return Elixir friendly uh, data structures. And uh, the plan there, by the way, is to have them not be ecto structures. And this is this is a tangent I'll simply note exists and and we leave for later. But there's been a lot. One of the things that I don't know if you were able to see the Elixir Conf EU talks, but there was a lot of discussion around. Um, as people's apps scale out, Phoenix has done a lot of great work to, with context and other kind of uh, code organization patterns to avoid the bloat and coupling issues that I think all of us ran into in Rails as, as our Rails apps grew. Um, but there's still this deep dependency at the view layer to Ecto. And that's when people are, if you're using embedded schemas and you have like dedicated schemas that are helping drive your forms, then it's just a tool and it's not actually coupled. But the vast majority of us are taking our ectoschema that represents a database table and shoving that right in a form. And that's great when you're writing CRUD, but like none of us are writing CRUD after like the first month of our app, especially if we're doing, you know, things in live view. You want to you want to build UIs that are more workflow oriented. So there's a there's a couple of tangents there that I won't go into, but when I, I actually think that the more that we can have good stories for managing uh, high-level view-oriented data requests. Um, and separate that from from create some distance between the underlying ecto code. I think there's actually a lot of interest in that. So we'll see how it shakes out. That's really cool. I like that you mentioned your GraphQL client because that's one thing I had noticed had been missing. And I was going to ask you about it because it sounded like you guys were kind of using GraphQL for your servers to talk to each other. And I was going to ask you, well, how are you communicating with each other? Are you just writing strings out? Like, so that's cool that you're writing on you're you're working on a little client. I'm excited to see how that how that looks and i know that i know a couple of people personally that will 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 enjoy seeing that so that's exciting and will that be a separate uh project it will be a separate project it will almost certainly depend on absinthe because basically what it's going to need to do is introspect the schema that you're querying and then it will actually it creates its own sort of like client side copy of that schema that that you know it, it uses to validate on things so what's cool is whether or not your Absinthe uh, server, or, or rather, whether your GraphQL server is part of that same thing because you it's all one app and that makes sense for your team and, and your sort of uh, operation strategy and so on, or whether it's a remote GraphQL schema that's not even written in Elixir, it should all just like work 100% the same way. Well, I look forward to hearing more about that when you're further along in the project and maybe ready to announce something. So I'd love to have you come back on and tell us more about that when the time comes for that. 
Absolutely. One other thing I just want to make, I wanted to mention, this is where I understood the use case for GraphQL initially. And whenever someone says, well, why should I be using GraphQL? This is the use case I explain and I give. I want to check with you and see, is this still a valid one or should I be revisiting this? It's the idea that the technology was originally created by Netflix and Facebook, where they created similar ideas uh, to solve the same kind of problem. And the problem was, is that you had a mobile device or mobile client or a remote client, like in terms of Netflix, say you bought your Panasonic smart TV, which came with a Netflix app already installed. And Panasonic is never going to give you a new firmware update where that app gets updated. <laughs> and so they, so Netflix is left trying, having to support, you know, version 1.0 of their client that was installed on your TV. And you think about all the years and iterations and that Netflix has gone through to change their APIs, you know, like that's having to have backward compatibility to, you know, forever. And Facebook, similarly, they they found when they had people buying iPhones and then, you know, maybe your iPhone is now five years old and it's not getting any more iOS updates. And so there's no way you can get the new iOS Facebook app that they still want to be able to support those people where it not break for them because they're still getting value out of their device. And you're having to have that backward compatibility. And GraphQL offers a better solution for being able to provide that answer. Um, is that still hold true for you, Ben? Um, I think that the I think that versioning was one part of that story. I do think that the other part of the story was that Facebook in, in particular had, um, you know, all of these internal ser- services and they wanted to create sort of a unified API that would work not just across those services, but then allow when clients are making queries, uh, you know, if you don't need to query the information that's on service X, it shouldn't incur load on that service. So for example, you can of course write a REST API that stitches together data from several places, but if half the people hitting that particular, you know, um, um, like if the mobile client is hitting the, uh, a new version of the mobile client is hitting the post list, you know, doesn't need data that from that, uh, from one of those services that's, that's being integrated, it shouldn't actually need to go request any of that data. So I think there were two parts. There's some versioning interest, and there is um, uh, a sort of unified, flexible querying interface. I think that the, my personal experience is a lot more to do with the unifying sort of disparate data sources side than it does uh, the versioning. I think that the versioning story is good. But I do think that to the degree that you want to make backward incompatible changes, you're kind of stuck doing what everybody else is stuck doing, although there are some sort of developer affordances that make life a little easier there. So to expand on that, GraphQL does have a first-class uh, notion of documentation and a first-class notion of deprecation. The, the GraphQL server is writing essentially a data structure that describes your schema. And of course, any uh, client that wants to, or a developer that wants to code against that can ask what that schema is. And amusingly, you can actually use GraphQL to ask about its own schema. It, it, it has introspection built into the very query language. Uh, and this has led to some, some really great tooling. Part of what you find out is, you know, is this field deprecated? In fact, when you're asking for what fields are available, deprecated ones aren't, aren't shown by default. And of course, if you're using a field and then it becomes deprecated, you're going to start getting a sort of warning in your response that says you're using you're using deprecated fields. Like any API, it's pretty easy to add new fields. What's nice about that, though, is that um, in a REST API, if you start adding additional information to your representation of a post or your representation of a user, you're suddenly incurring load on all of your clients. Like the mobile app that, uh, if you have a mobile app that was asking for um, a particular set of information and your next version of the mobile app also wants some other information, but not maybe some bits and pieces from before, you either like make a whole new version of your mobile API with the occurring overhead, or you like say, well, we're just adding a couple of fields. Well, that's fine. But now you're sending that data over the mobile you know, internet to all of these people who aren't using it. And that's taking up data, the, the client on the other end has to throw it away, et cetera. So the story around growing and expanding your API, I do think is a lot better uh, precisely because each app tracks what you're using. 
the story around deprecation is better because once again, you can know for sure what is actually being used um, because you can see it on a field by field basis um, to the degree that you wanna make truly backwards incompatible changes. Then at that point you do eventually have to say, okay, we have all these things that we really wanna do completely differently. We are gonna make a slash V2 on our, on our GraphQL API and, and at that point, you know, how, how much developer overhead you incur doing that depends on, on the backend support. But, but to your point, the, that story still holds true today. We see that ourselves, um, both in terms of keeping track of, of what we have out in the field and in terms of um, uh, not incurring more, you know, we have a lot of devices that use mobile APIs, or sorry, that use mobile internet, and we benefit a lot from not pushing more data than we need. So this is a lot of benefits that I'm hearing from GraphQL. What what have you discovered to be like this is a reason why we should have avoided it? You know, what's the downsides of GraphQL if there are any? <laughs> no, sure. I mean, um there's a couple of the couple of areas that regularly appear as um where you're going to have to do some extra work. I'll say, I'll put it that way is like uh, the caching story around GraphQL is not as blindingly obvious uh, as it is with REST. So that's that's an area. I think there's answers there, but you start up, you have to like go out of your way to do some work there. As with uh, any kind of very flexible API, the, the story around um, preventing accidental over querying is you have to put some effort into that too. So I'll, to expand on that, there are kind of three three kinds of users perhaps that I'll identify that, and the different troubles you can have with them. So certainly at Cargo Sense, we have you know, our own development team that's coding against it. We have uh, partners at other companies who are coding against it. Or maybe if you're GitHub, you have just like random, random users, but you at least know who they are. They have to have some auth token associated with an account to query. And then you, know, you might have like a truly public API. And the risks, the risks, of course, with any API is you've got bad actors who are going to try to like, you know, cause, cause trouble. And with truly bad actors who are trying to mess you up, the answer honestly actually looks pretty similar to REST because whether you have a REST API uh, or whether you have a GraphQL API, it's not so much about how much data they're querying. It's about the fact that you're going to be querying, you know, it's tons of requests. You're going to get overloaded no matter what they do. So you leverage a lot of the same tooling. Yeah. yeah. It's, but... Now with like your uh, user who is authenticated and you're allowing to query, this is where it gets more complicated because uh, the simple answer of just throttling them to some reasonable limit isn't going to be enough because what uh, a simple query that you could let them do 10 times a second might be totally fine, but if they're requesting a lot more data, it does that, that might not be fine. So GraphQL has an answer here, but it does take a little bit of work on the part of the developer. So Generally speaking, most GraphQL server implementations have some form of complexity analysis where you can sort of annotate your GraphQL fields with uh, a complexity metric and you sort of allow X amount of complexity per second, basically, that, that they're allowed to do. Ah, um, so smart. And the nice thing is uh, basic heuristics go a long way there where you sort of say, like, if the, develop, if the backend developer had to write a de- an actual resolver for this field, i.e. it's not as simple as just like getting the name off a user is about, it's just like map.get user name, right? So those kind of get a complexity of one, basically. And then anything that has um, database access, you give a complexity of like a thousand and you limit people to like, you know, a hundred thousand per second or something, right? And like that as a going strategy works really well and you can customize that over time. So it's not hard, but you do have to like think about it, right? And whereas with a REST API, you just say you get 100 requests a second, and we know that like our, our P95 is, you know, 10 milliseconds or 100 milliseconds. So that's fine for us. Yeah. That, that sounds like a smart way to handle it. That, that also reminds me of some strange billing models, oddly enough. Like at Circle CI, I have no idea what these credits really mean to me. <laughs> so. So I I don't know how long in minutes you know I have in these in these containers to run tests for example because um, you have to buy credits and and who knows what credits are and they change depending on the platform and all that kind of stuff. Um, not to say that that's not smart. It's just it, it does obfuscate a little bit to the end user. Like, well, I don't actually know what my limit is. I guess we'll just have to do it and find out. <laughs> no, absolutely, and and um, and that's like. 
uh, although GraphQL, I think, is very easy to learn and has some of the best tooling for figuring out what you want from an API, the, there are still downsides there. You run into, like, on the partners, you know, some people just want, they don't want to learn. They just want, like, a bunch of data. They want to hit a thing really simply, get a bunch of data, and then they'll pick out in their code what they want from that. Um, and so you either have to, like, educate them or... More often, what we end up doing is we'll, we write the GraphQL query that they should do, and we just, like, shove that in. this like, post this blob at us, and it'll get what you want. And, and you know, then they'll, like, a- after a couple of iterations, they can start to kind of figure out, like, oh, I can just ask for these things. But even then, the, gra- the way that GraphQL models changes to the graph is a double-edged sword. So when we talked earlier about uh, GraphQL mutations as sort of the entry point for changes, one thing I really like about it is that it moves you away from CRUD as the only verbs that programmers know how to use. You know, I, in my, the talk I gave at uh, the Big Elixir, I sort of was ranting against uh, this sort of increasingly stilted vocabulary that programmers end up using when they talk about stuff because the only verbs we allow are like create, update, delete, or, you know, uh, insert update, uh, select. And, and when you actually talk to people, it's a lot, it's very different. You know, they start shipments, they provision things. There's this very rich vocabulary that our end users use. And if we can't model that in our code, it can be very easy to write things that make sense in like a data way to us as programmers. Then you stick in front of people and it doesn't match their workflow. So GraphQL mutations are not built around creating a shipment or whatever. It's just, it's almost like a function. You get a, you pick whatever you want, provision shipment, it happens to return a shipment, but it takes whatever input you want and it can fit that workflow. So that's like the good side. But the downside is it's kind of just a flat namespace of all the changes you can make to your system. And that does make, especially on the, the when you're trying to get people to do stuff, you have to write some high level documentation that says like, if you're doing user management, go look at these mutations. If you're doing shipments, look at these mutations because otherwise you have like a hundred plus mutations and people are like, where do I even begin? And then naming them becomes important, right? It's like if, if your naming of a mutation starts with update, then you've got all the updates grouped together and it's like, you know, it's interesting. Depend certain GraphQL tools will group them by the return type, which is often more useful. Or or you can like work backwards. You can say like, I know I'm definitely messing with shipments. So let me go look at mutations that return uh, shipments or like thin wrappers around mutation results for shipments. So it's a little bit like that um, Haskell, uh, there's like a Haskell search, like library search tool where you just put in the types that you want and it'll look up libraries that like take these types and return these other types. It's not quite the same thing, but the type system does help with that. But it's it certainly, it makes naming very important and it does make does not eliminate the need for sort of high-level getting started docs. Nice. So I did have a a few questions. I I do want to respect your time, so we don't want to keep you too long. But one of the things I would love to kind of get an idea from you on is I've had the problem where we had a a REST API and we were like, hey, what if we could move this to GraphQL knowing that we're not going to ask our customers to retool because they already have something that works and maybe they even had to pay a third party, you know, consultant to come in and do it for them. They don't want to have to revisit that. So like we want to be able to provide uh, you know, a REST interface. So we we were able to do that because one of the things I found in the documentation was what is that called? There's that controller that could just you you could annotate the controller with a GraphQL. What is that thing called? Yeah, so we have this kind of kooky feature in Absinthe Phoenix that lets you uh, annotate regular old controller actions with the GraphQL query and put some directives, which you can kind of think of like uh, almost GraphQL macros that let that that would uh, let you. It would just return regular Elixir structs if it's within the same server instead of the sort of string key JSON. I and that's sort of there's really two approaches when people are trying to to migrate a REST API and make it over GraphQL or sort of put GraphQL under it so that you get, you know, a GraphQL out on the side, but you can kind of have existing customers move forward. One is, as you're saying, where you, especially if you have a lot of like view logic that really depends heavily on having access to the full Elixir structs, you can use that, that capability. It's my long-term plan to kind of deprecate that in favor of Absinthe Client. Like once Absinthe Client is a first-class thing, I, I think that will largely replace that model um, 
and that will help just make a better user experience out of, I think, what is a slightly more common pattern wherein, um, and certainly what we've done is where we've had either a couple of old, very legacy REST APIs, or we've had customers that, that you know, really want to put, that, that because of contract terms and legal languages, they have to, they include REST in there and it's too hard to fight them. Um, we've made some REST APIs and it just makes a GraphQL query and, um, and then reformats it or on the other end, right? So we, um, we have some customers that are running very legacy systems. CargoSense is in the logistics space. We have a customer that is pushing data to us from a mainframe. I'm not kidding. Um, and, you know, it's a file. They push a big old file over SFTP to a thing. And so we, we're very adamant about, like, when we write integrations for that, those integrations are not allowed any special privilege. They make GraphQL requests and mutations just like everybody else. And if we have to make some changes to our API to support XYZ, great, cool. That's That will immediately create benefits and capabilities across our whole system. Um, and even if we're running it in this, the main platform app that technically could insert it to the database, um, you know, that's, we, we really try to avoid avoid doing that. We just write the GraphQL queries and mutations. And that's, that's worked out just fine. That is a very good tip, though, that on the um, that you're wanting to deprecate that feature in favor of the absent clients, because I, I think that makes sense, because that, that actually leads into my other point, which was uh, one of the things that we ran into is like when you're dealing like can you're kind of replacing a Rails implemented REST API, Rails was very permissive about the data types that came in, like they could post uh, in the post body, it might come in like uh, a number might come in as a string. Right. So like the number one is actually a string one and absinthe, you know, has a stronger type system that's kind of enforced with that. And it says, boom, I'm not taking that. You got to give me an actual one in the JSON. And so like, I think that's interesting. Is there any uh, point in particular you can kind of share on that? Uh, how I might address that one, one thought I had was if I just had a rest endpoint, a Phoenix controller that takes the request, I can massage the data before, you know, turning it into the GraphQL request. Um, I don't know, any other thoughts? Yeah, so it sort of depends on um, how how much churn you expect within those APIs. So if they're very legacy and they, they aren't really, you're not really expecting feature requests, then like the pragmatist in me says just like, get the JSON, run it through a function that makes it better, and reshapes it to what your GraphQL schema input expects, and boom, call it call it quits. Mm-hmm. But to perhaps give you a slightly different analogy, um, in our front-end LiveView app, where we are um, ultimately making GraphQL mutation calls, um, very early on, we were writing sort of ecto-embedded schema structs that would represent our GraphQL inputs, and we'd like build forms around them. And we rapidly realized this was a big mistake because the form, much like your legacy API, might have data that like isn't actually important for that particular thing or is representing, you know, you're, you're actually, the way that you think about it in your GraphQL API, these t- things that were separate values should now be inform each other and create some totally new third value. There can be a difference between, in other words, a, a radical difference between the shapes that you're bringing in and the shapes that you want to send to your API. And so what we did for all of that is we started writing um, uh, ecto-embedded schemas for that really represented the form state. So we could parse that in, cast it any way we wanted, do some validations on it that really focused um, and could help us create error messages that were in the terms of the original input shape. Um, and then if it like went through all of that, there was just a very simple function that would take that and turn it into the GraphQL uh, mutation and there's, there's more like boilerplate with that, but the big upside is if there are if you are expecting changes and, and sort of evol- evolution of features in that API, you have data structures that really formalize that, make it easier for you know you put it down for three months and then you get someone has a feature request and you come back and you're like, gosh, what are the expectations here? Well, you have embedded schemas and I, you know it makes it easier to write tests around that that tell you what's going on versus like you know we've all written code that takes string key. JSON and fiddles with it. And then, you know, you come back to it six months later and you're like, boof, like what were the expectations here? So 
that's those are kind of the things I recommend it, from sort of e- easiest to hardest, depending on how much churn you expect. So I, I must admit, though, I was surprised to hear you mention that you're using a live view interface to make GraphQL requests. That, honestly, that surprised me because my original kind of like the way I'd kind of thought about this is that GraphQL is an awesome tool for being able to manage and kind of partly because I was thinking of that versioning interface for having a a deployed uh, like JavaScript front end or a mobile client, like either a deployed device, like, you know, a Roku or an Apple TV or something like that. Or maybe it's a, a mobile app on like an Android iPhone. I was kind of coming to it from the perspective of LiveView is different. And so I would love to hear a little bit about how you're dis- deploying this where you have the, like, it sounds like, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you have your Elixir system that that is the Absinthe server. And then you have a separate Phoenix application that is the live view front end that talks to that. Could you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. That's exactly right. So the, the reasons for doing that are, uh, at least for us, um, come, like we've been using Elixir for a really long time. We started, our, we wrote our first Elixir service when it was version 0.14 back in, gosh, 2013, whenever that was. And that, our, our core platform app is maybe not quite that old, but it's, it's, five or six years old and it has a lot of dependencies and it's, it's a big thing. And so we wanted to be able to, we want to be able to use live view because we have, especially six months ago, or gosh, it's been a year now, time flies. We, we had a, a team of Elixir developers that we really wanted to be able to iterate quickly on some very interactive, very real-time UIs. And live view seemed like a good fit there and offers, I still think offers a much simpler model for reasoning about state than uh, a lot of the JavaScript um, front-end frameworks. And so we, we wanted to build this live view app. And if we had chosen to do it directly within our core platform app, we had a couple of concerns. You know, it needed some very recent version of Phoenix, but like we had, uh, uh, we can't always upgrade immediately to the latest Phoenix or the latest Elixir in our large app because it's large. We have dependent, lots of dependencies. They got to get updated, et cetera, et cetera. So we wanted to be able to move very quickly. A lot of this came out of sort of operational concerns. But the other aspect of it also came out of scaling concerns. Like we weren't entirely sure how live you would perform, how much memory would it need, et cetera, et cetera. And so by creating a separate app, we could sort of provision it separately, uh, again, from an operations standpoint, differently from our core platform. But the last reason that we decided this made sense is that whether we were going to put it in our core platform or not, we were firmly convinced that if you want to query information about something, GraphQL is a great way to query that information. So even if we put it in our thing, we'd probably be using GraphQL. Like we'd already put all this effort into creating this interconnected way of, of getting data and relating that to other data and doing that in real time, right? So as I, as I mentioned, you know, we, we basically turned all our pages into real time pages basically for free. And so with that model, it made, it was clear we we're gonna use GraphQL one way or another. And so um, if we were gonna do that, it, we gained, it no longer needed to be sort of co-located in the same beam nodes as, as our core platform. And so we, we were, our operations process made it, made, made it make sense to split that out. And what's funny is you actually get um, like when the, the if you think about it from a data perspective, you've got someone on a who has a web browser and they're looking at a live view page, and the JavaScript on that page has a WebSocket back to our our UI application, and it actually opens a WebSocket back to our core platform. And there are the live view is like uh, pushing data there. The the live view process in our UI app subscribes over that WebSocket to uh, changes in our core platform. And then when the person's browser goes away, boom, that clears out the LiveView process, which clears out the, the, the WebSocket process, which clears out the subscriptions. And the, the OTP architecture there really has our back for making cleanup easy and, and you know pushing data through it really simply. So I have to ask, what was your uh, observation then about how the live view deployment worked? Like, did you feel you had to scale them out? Did they scale well? Did the RAM requirements, how did that come out for you guys? Uh, it's worked out really well. It's very fast. It is extremely fast. So, and, and it's only gotten faster. So fantastic work by uh, Chris and Jose and, and others I know who have been working on that. Very early versions of the app we uh, we sort of started rolling this out to a limited number of customers. And so we did absolutely bonkers stuff. And we definitely had like 
at one point individual pages that would load like 500 megs of data and do do silly stuff with them. But you know, again, what's neat is like OTP had our back there. We could remote console in, we could look at the memory usage, and we could value like it was a really really good experience. Um, you know, we've gotten things now to where uh, it's very efficient using live redirect, kind of minimizes the amount of like double rendering that we have to do. Um, so I'm I continue to be very happy with it. One of the things that I'm hoping for and kind of working with with Chris on is um, improved ways for when you really do need to use JavaScript. For example, if you're using Google Maps, you're going to write some JavaScript. If you're doing charts, like you're going to write some JavaScript. And I don't have a problem with that. Um, but we sending data efficiently from the Live View up to that JavaScript, not trying to have it placed in the DOM. There's some improvements there. Like Live View is still very new, and and we're seeing. We definitely see like more that, uh, on the roadmap to make our lives easier, but we've been very happy with the pace it's let us develop. And, and the relationship with GraphQL has allowed us to iterate, has been part of what's allowed us to iterate very quickly because when we decide that our page now needs these other things, we go to our GraphQL query, we add those things, and it's right there for our live view use. So that, that separation has also made it easy for us to bring in uh, some people who are less experienced with Ecto. Like, I, th I love Ecto. Ecto is a fantastic uh, library, both in terms of um, how it, it models making queries to a database, how it handles data, but it's different. And it's, it's got its own learning curve. Like, people, there are, you can totally have someone who's good at Elixir, even good at, like, Phoenix, and lear learning how to do Ecto well is its, its own learning curve. But if you are querying your data over GraphQL, it's so blindingly simple. Just be like, oh, also, can I get these things? And like, boom, your GraphQL developers already made sure that's efficient and you're off to the races. Very cool. So I did have one last question um, for me. And this is just because I've seen some recent discussion in the community around uh, people talking about macros and how like when I'm having that testing cycle, and I'm just like I'm running X unit and I've got some fast, like I want to make, make a quick change and run, run the test and see, did I fix it? Make a change? What happened? Uh, that when there's a lot of use of macros, it causes a larger recompilation step. And I know that Absinthe, the definition of the schemas, uh, is all very macro-based. And I was just wondering if you've seen in that problem with Absinthe, or, and if, there, if that is there, what can we do to mitigate that? Any tips you have there? Yeah, that's, that's a great topic, because it really touches on um, a key part of what we worked on for in Absinthe 1.5. So Absinthe 1.5 got officially released um, sometime in the last few months. And uh, what, it, what it really embodies is a core rewrite of how we build schemas. Uh, and this is really for two reasons. One, it's to begin to have better answers to the questions you've asked. So to start there, yeah, based on certain, the, the, the way that the Elixir compiler uh, tracks which modules it needs to recompile, um, without getting into the details, the way that people end up writing their GraphQL schemas really can couple that schema to many different modules in your Elixir code base. And then if you make a change to one of those, it makes the compiler think it needs to recompile the schema, which makes it think it needs to recompile a bunch of stuff. And this is an issue that has plagued us and others. Um, the good news about that specific issue is that the Phoenix and Ecto team have also had similar things, right? Both also use macros, both also re uh, uh, reference things like controllers or other schemas. And they've got a tactic that um, helps break that specific issue with sort of a change tagging in the Elixir compiler. It's been on the to-do list to implement that in Absinthe for a while, and I have not done that yet. So if, you, if you're out there and you want to contribute to uh, Absinthe, uh, please, please reach out to me about that issue. I think that'd be a great thing to start. So... That's one bit. And that is, strictly speaking, orthogonal, I think, to macros. It's a thing you often run into, but there are answers there. Uh, where macros have been a, a bigger issue, in my opinion, is that they make it very hard to contribute to Absinthe because the, uh, when you're, the intuitions you learn about Elixir code do not necessarily carry over super well into writing Elixir macros. It's kind of its own world. And Absinthe has these nested macros, and it's very complicated. So what we did in Absinthe 1.5 is instead of using those macros to build an Elixir schema, or uh, sorry, an Absinthe schema, um, those macros now simply um, return data structures that represent what you gave us, 
and then we in an app in a later pass grab all those data structures and those serve as the sort of beginning of uh, 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 those go through a series of phases that actually turn that into a GraphQL schema. So really, what that is is if you think about um, how plug works, where you get a plug.com struct, and then a GraphQL or sorry, an HTTP request is just taking that, making some changes, getting some info off of it, and passing it on. That's uh, how absent queries have worked for a long time. You give us a GraphQL string, we turn that into what we call a blueprint, and then we do a bunch of work through, through phases to, to reason about it and eventually execute it. And schemas work the same way now. We take uh, the macros, or we now support uh, GraphQL SDL, which is the sort of um, now spec-defined schema definition language, uh, and we turn it into this common blueprint struct, and we reason about it. And then out the other end, we actually have two different backends for storing your schema. We can build a sort of traditional compiled version, or we now support using a persistent term, which is, I think we're going to move to. It's a really great feature in OTP 23. But anyway, um, the, the fact that it's now just like data structure in, data structure out, uh, really lowers the barrier to entry to reasoning about schemas. It lowers the barrier to entry to doing certain dynamic features that people have wanted for a long time. For example, on boot, uh, merging in a different GraphQL schema. So um, macros, the, the cost of macros we've seen is really um, more around the development complexity that they create. And so we've been trying to move away from um, how much logic, how much work is performed in the macro universe and the, the, every step we take uh, away from that and towards the sort of normal functional approaches yielded big dividends for us. Um, and that's that's when been one big lesson as sort of an open source maintainer is that uh, whatever time, you better build something that other people can help with. Because whatever time you think you have to contribute to it now, like that will ebb and flow. And and especially if you're, especially if it gets any users, um, you know, they, they, User, people are very kind, but they're, they've got their stuff that they're working on, right? And so, like, if, if they need a feature, they will ask, and that's perfectly fine. And, and you want to make it possible for um, that there needs to be a clear learning curve, not just on how to use Absinthe, but for how to contribute to Absinthe. And we've really been trying to work on that over time. You mentioned the idea of people contributing to Absinthe. Are there any particular ways that you would like people to get involved, either with testing beta releases or anything like that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I def someone uh, just now, just as a shout out, someone has got an open PR on data loader to um, handle limits and offsets using um, lateral joins. It's been like on my wish list for years because um, this is when you want to get the top 10 comments for each post. This is a relatively complicated thing to write in SQL. And for a while, it was blocked by Ecto's ability to kind of generate that kind of query. But then eventually, someone, uh, eventually Ecto, Ecto added good lateral joint support. And my stance was sort of, uh, sorry, folks, I'm real busy. Anybody can do this. If you want this, please do it. And someone, some uh, a wonderful person has stepped up and done it. So that'll get merged in shortly. Um, so, there, but that was a very hard problem, right? And there's a reason that it didn't kind of get, no one, no one stepped up for a while. I think where Absinthe could use um, like updates to the documentation, expansions on the documentation, like it doesn't feel as cool because you're not like, you know, you know it's not some amazing feature. But one of the things that I learned about writing the book is, um, you know, answering questions on Slack doesn't scale. Uh, I've, 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 my presence on Slack has ebbed and flowed over the years. It's, it's back to being a lot because of COVID. But um, it was honestly exhausting. That's been uh, this is a sort of whole topic on on open source work life balance. But um, you know, answering a, ten questions a day every day is nowhere near the amount of information that like taking the time to write a chapter that explains how data loader work that answers hundreds of questions to thousands of people. And it's, it's really the best way to go forward. And the guides and people have contributed to the guides a lot. So I'm very grateful to that. Every, every guide change helps, you know, thousands and thousands of people and answers dozens of questions. So documentation is top of my list every time. Um, from there, um, there's a bunch of features that we built specifically in Absinthe 1.5 and we're 
got out the door and then like didn't document. So I've been, um, I've been really, some people have brought interesting scenarios like, Ooh, absence 1.5 has like a good answer for that. And then I help them. And then like that knowledge, like just goes into the little silo of that person's world. And, um, mostly because like, I just have, have had trouble finding the time to like write up a good example that like really illustrates it and so on. So specifically, if you are interested in dynamic changes, you can make to schemas, talk to me. I'll, I'll set up like a little hour long zoom call and talk to you about it and then help you, you know, I'll, I'll edit your PR, et cetera. Um, but I don't, I just don't have a lot of time for, for focused writing these days. So docs, docs about absence 1.5, um, stuff around, there's going to be a bunch of stuff around the absence client. Um, so stay tuned on that. Um, those are really the two big ones that, that come to mind. Um, so that's, that's the big one. Do you have any speaking engagements coming up? I do not, um, which is really quite a, kind of a bummer. I meant to get back into it. And then this, this year has been an interesting year. Of course, COVID, COVID's been a big deal. Uh, I also, as it turns out, uh, I'm, I'm going to be a dad for, uh, at the end of the year. So that, oh, that's, that's, thank you. We're, my wife and I are very excited. And so we've got a bunch of like, house right out of stuff. So, you know, life, life happens. And I think that that's important for, um, open, like it's, it can be very hard getting involved in open source, not just getting started, but like staying, staying on it. And, um, I've done, I've done a very poor job, uh, keeping up with XAWS. And I, I want people to know that because I think it's, I think it's important that, um, you know, we're just upfront about like our, our limits as, as developers. But so, Speaking engagements are a thing I meant to get back into and haven't. Uh, one of the things I really want to talk more about is the realizations that GraphQL has um, helped me think through in terms of how to how to think about what our apps care about. Because when you're writing REST, there's such this obvious parallel between like um, a post and an insert in the database and a put and an update in the database. And we get... Uh, very crud focused and we lose sight of workflows. We look, we lose sight of the activity that people are around. My, my 2018 talk was about this, um, but my thoughts on the subject have evolved a lot. Um, and so I, I hope to get back out there and, and talk more about um, how I think people should be writing kind of activity oriented uh, Elixir projects in general. And then in particular, you know, how GraphQL I th- and, and, and live view for that matter uh, help, our, our tools help shift the way we approach problems towards that mindset and away from the, the crud focused mindset. We've, I think all been stuck in for a long time. Well, I look forward to hearing more about that as, as you kind of formalize that and kind of present that somewhere. I did want to make sure people knew about the book that you co-authored. It's pragmatic programmer has it. It's craft GraphQL APIs in Elixir with absinthe. And we're going to also have some links to the uh, presentations you've given previously. Ben, it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for coming on. If people want to get in touch with you or follow you, where's the best place to direct them? Uh, if you've got an absinthe question, um, the Elixir forums really are the best place. There's quite a lot of um, expertise there beyond just myself. Um, and if you tag it with absinthe, I'll usually get to it eventually. The Elixir Slack also has um, like a fantastic set of resources. Uh, and those are, those are the best ways to do it. If you've got... Um, if you have a feature proposal, you're always welcome to put that on the, the any of the absinthe uh, uh, projects. I, I phrase it that way because uh, if you have a feature request, you're more than welcome to talk about it with other people. But proposals, you know, I, we want some we want some help thinking through the the challenges associated with it. But um, yeah, the forums are forums are great. Definitely recommend them. Awesome. Well, that's it for today. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. I've got one last question, highly, highly relevant uh, to what we're talking about. Who's your favorite character on Super Smash Brothers Ultimate? Who who do you fight with? I, I'm all about the bird, man. I'm I'm a Falco guy. Um, I my I started. I didn't. I didn't. I'm sorry. Captain Punching. Uh, Cap, or no, that's Cap, not Captain Falcon. Captain Falcon's got the cool Falcon punch. I'm I'm the the short hop blazer and, and down air. Oh, like Captain Falco. Stuff. That the gosh. Yeah. yeah. I'm apparently so so out of it. I'm a Kirby it guy. Was, it was one of those things where you know my my roommates in college and I played it kind of you know recreationally and then 
one one guy would always beat us. We eventually got tired of that. And so someone found like videos on the internet of like how to get better with characters. And this started a ridiculous arms race of, of <laughs> Super Smash Bros. Melee tech skill. Um, Okay. It's not a thing I've kept up, although I, I, you know, I follow it on Twitter enough to know that they just someone's got new net codes. You can play it over the internet better, and it's <laughs> I I know more about professional Super Smash Brothers than I do uh, uh, football. I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> my, 